Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. So for me, getting up in the morning and painting right away before I looked at Facebook, before I looked at the news, before I started answering emails, for me, it was a way healthier way for me to start the day. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with artists and teachers about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today I'm talking with artist Lisa Daria Kennedy. Kennedy works many different ways across several media, but today we're focusing on her daily painting work. In this episode, you'll discover how she overcomes frustrations, keeps her painting styles loose, and you'll learn how she has streamlined her approach so that showing up is as easy as possible, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 14 for show notes. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Here we go. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get into painting? I started painting in 2009. I started a daily painting project. I've been painting now for 3,964 days. That's consecutive days every day, including vacations and holidays. I started in 2009. I wanted a way to record every day. So every day I wake up, I paint in the morning as soon as I get up. And at the end of the day, I scan the painting in and I label it for something that happened that day, kind of like a journal entry. The Daily Painting Project started as a result of being a young adult cancer survivor. I kind of sat around thinking of all the things I hadn't done. I hadn't learned to paint, but more of it was that I didn't have a way to remember all the days that kind of passed before me. About the same time, there was Daily Painters that I had seen online coming about, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Not all of them were painting every single day. I think maybe there were a maybe one or two that were doing it every single day as a commitment. And I thought, well, I'd like to do that, but I'd like to do it every single day. So I started the blog and I started painting at the same time in 2009, March 25th, I think. I started the blog with my first and my middle name, Lisa Daria. So just in case I stopped doing it, nobody could find me. (laughs) Nobody would be able to find it again. But yeah, what started off as sort of a project that I thought maybe I'd do for, I was hoping a year, but I wasn't really sure if I'd make it that long, um, has turned into something that's been going on for 11 years. Did you find acrylics right away or how did you find acrylics then? I had gone to school for illustration, so I was introduced to a lot of different media, but I never really learned wet media very well. And when I tried acrylic for the first time in the early 90s, it didn't really work all that great. So the reason I chose acrylic for this project is because it dries quickly. It dries quickly and it's not like oil where I feel like you need a separate workspace for oil because of the issues with it. It's flammable and it it doesn't smell so great. So I went back to acrylic and sat down mostly with oil painting books, read techniques about oil painting and applied those techniques to acrylic. How was that transition like starting a new project, but also starting a new medium. The project was based around also learning how to paint. So I think I was up for the challenge, but 
it wasn't smooth. I painted only a little bit in acrylic before, and it really didn't go that well years ago. It wasn't anything that I stuck with. So it wasn't easy at the beginning. And that's also why I decided to do it every day because I would get kind of discouraged. I would paint a painting and I didn't think it would come out so great. And then I thought, well, at least if I'm doing it tomorrow, you know, you can't have the good without the bad kind of thing. You had this idea that you would do it for a year. What was that first year like? The first year, I would set aside about three hours a day to do the painting, and sometimes it would take me more. The first year, I really didn't have a method down in that I wouldn't do it as soon as I woke up every day, and then I would kind of save it for the end of the day. And it was creating a little bit of um, discomfort for me, putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And also, I didn't have really a rhythm for a while of what I wanted to paint every single day. So at the beginning, I would kind of just find things around me. I may have painted something outside or I may have painted something from the market. So the beginning of the project wasn't as focused as it started to become around day 1000. So it took a while to get more into what I wanted or what I thought that I wanted to paint. I really didn't know what I wanted to paint. And, you know, at some point I had realized it didn't really matter what I was painting as long as I was showing up and painting every day. But at some point I wanted to sustain interest in one subject instead of running to the market and buying fruits and vegetables. I don't even like fruit. So I wasn't really sure what I was doing there. What I find interesting about that is so many of us go into painting thinking that we'll just know all the things. Mm. And it sounds like it took you today a thousand to even realize some of the directions that you wanted to head. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't that I was, I don't want to say dissatisfied with the paintings I had done. I don't really look at them in that way. They're a practice, a daily practice. So it's not really about the individual paintings. It's more about the overall project, like keep doing it and showing up for the job every day. So it wasn't that I was really even that conscientious of not wanting to paint what I was painting. You know, there were other people online doing still lifes every day. And I thought that was great, but it didn't really resonate with me. And, you know, people paint glasses and paper bags. And I tried pretty much all of that. And um, it wasn't until I decided to pick something that I could paint for a week that would have its only own start and stop date because you know flowers they live they die they live they die and also because of the flowers you can sort of rotate them ever so slightly they become a slightly different subject so for me they were entertaining enough to kind of hang out I never sat down thinking oh I'm gonna stay here and paint flowers all the time I never thought of that sounds like you started to find I guess like limitations isn't the right word but edges to the project what other edges did you set up for yourself? Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. There are definitely parameters. So setting limits or parameters or edges, like you say, from the beginning helped me. So first of all, limiting my color palette of the colors of the paint to six colors plus white. That was the first rule that I started and that really helped. And that was gleaned from a lot of oil painting books that I read. And that's just color theory to begin with. But even though I studied all the color theory, when you don't use it, you lose it. So I started limiting my color palette. That helped. Also, starting the limitations or the parameters of painting at a certain time of day. At the beginning, like I said, it would be kind of this kind of frenzied thing that at 9 o'clock at night I still hadn't painted. And I'm really not a night owl, so that wasn't working for me. I would almost 
I don't want to say be anxious about it. That's a different thing. But just sort of it would be weighing on me a little bit throughout the day. And I didn't want it to be like that. So the next set of rules that I set was to wake up at five o'clock in the morning in pain. And still after the many years, waking up at five o'clock in the morning does not come naturally. I have to set an alarm for 5am. That is not my time of day. But with other responsibilities like working or, you know, I was doing a lot of freelance when I started this project and you have to be on call for clients past a certain time of the morning, usually between eight and nine, working at 5am was really helpful because it wasn't interfering with anybody else's time. It wasn't interfering with work. And also it stopped a bad habit of kind of getting up early, like at six, you know, on my own maybe and getting right to work on a client project. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just sort of the whole day would revolve around work or deadlines or something else. So this was a way to sort of set the tone for the day that I'd already kind of done something for myself. Other rules I set were at day 1000, deciding to paint flowers. And still, I pretty much do that. I don't know the last time I didn't paint a flower for the daily painting, probably in 2016. I started thinking about other um, parameters too, like my interpretation doesn't have to be realistic because I was kind of setting up myself up for failure and trying to get things to look like what I was looking at more so than interpreting them into like more of a personal voice. So those kinds of things helped. Sometimes the tiniest block can stop a whole process how did you internally pay attention to those? Because so many of us, they just block us and then we stop painting. And then we look back five years ago and said like, oh, I just didn't like the paints I was using. And then I stopped. How conscious were you of those things that were could potentially trip you up or block you? Very much so. I talk a lot about making excuses and finding ways to get away from those. So things that I would have used as an excuse, I definitely um, made sure I wasn't. For instance, setting up paints and taking them down every day if you didn't have a studio, that didn't work for me. So I set up just a little tiny corner in my kitchen. I paint leaning on a roll of paper towels. I have a little mason jar with the brushes and a little basket with the paints. That can stay up every day because it takes up really only you know, maybe a foot and a half of space. I mean, it's really the size of a paper towel roll. That's the amount of space that I need. So getting rid of excuses, getting up at 5 a.m., and it doesn't have to be 5 a.m. I realize that's a little crazy. But getting up right away and starting to paint, even if you don't have three hours to commit to it at the beginning, eventually it won't probably take you three hours to make a painting. But what you can do is you can say, oh, I have an hour of time, and you can start a painting, end it at an hour and then the next day paint for an hour the next day and then maybe after three days you'd have a painting so whatever kind of obstacles you have you kind of have to work around that and find a way to make it work for yourself so for me getting up in the morning and painting right away before I looked at Facebook before I looked at the news before I started answering emails for me it was a way healthier way for me to start the day because sometimes that kind of stuff invites different energy into your house whether if you read something sad or stressful or whatever it was. So that was a good way to set the tone and to make sure that the project got done. Because if I'm going to make excuses and I read something sad on whatever or whatever I'm looking at, I think, oh, I don't need to paint today. That's too depressing, right? You know, I don't fall under like a depressed category or anything, but I think it's easy just to say, oh, this is pointless today because something else is going on. So also people say, well, what do you do if you're sick? 
I guarantee that if you wake up and you set your alarm and you spring out of bed, you don't even know you're sick yet until you're halfway done with the painting. So that's been the case too. A couple days a week, I have to um, go into Boston to teach an eight o'clock class and it's recommended that I get there before the students. So in order to make that happen, I have to get up extra early before five and to get up at four is not good. So what I'll do is I will get up at 4.30 and paint for half an hour before I leave. The painting's not finished, but I finish it when I get home. So I have to bend the rules on a couple days like that, but at least I know the painting started and, you know, the objective isn't what the painting looks like. It's showing it for the job and putting paint on canvas every day. So yeah, getting around those obstacles. When I travel, I um, try to schedule my flights for later in the afternoon because getting to the airport really, really early, I'm not going to be able to paint before I leave. And nobody likes the airport really in the morning, early in the morning. Anyhow, it's terrible. So I'll do things like that. Also, when I travel, I will pare the process down from six paints to three. I'll change the size of my board from six inches to four inches. So also, I won't make excuses then. If I'm traveling with a friend or a companion, I often paint when they're in the shower, just so it's not intrusive on a little space that we might be sharing. What freedom do you think it gives you internally that the goal is the showing up and not the finished painting? For me, it provides this sort of a sense of calm because I work on bigger paintings in the studio during the rest of the day, and I can't always get in there every single day. And like you know, sometimes a holiday will happen and you don't paint for a week. But with the daily painting project where I'm always making time for that, I really can go into the studio and pick up a brush after a week or two and not feel like I have to start from zero again. It was kind of like the same thing, like joining a gym and not going for a while, like getting started for me again was really difficult. I don't go to gyms, but if I did, I think that's what would happen. So I felt that way about the creative process or making stuff or, you know, the, the creative practice that I really had to commit to something every single day in order to do other projects throughout the day or when I had time for them. Showing up every day creates some technical challenges. And one of those technical challenges is keeping inspired. And then if you're on a roll, like if things are going good, that can carry. But also if you get frustrated, that potentially can carry. So I guess the first question is, what do you do when you do get frustrated? There's a couple of different things that I do. Maybe there's three different things that I do. So one is if I'm frustrated and the painting is what it is and I can set it aside, I can take those ideas that I wanted to do on that painting and apply it to tomorrow. So the trick is, is to kind of put down a mark and leave it and move on. Because if not, that painting could go from taking one to three hours to taking three to 10 hours because you're not making it any better or worse, you're just making it different. So if you can just trust in the fact that you'll show up tomorrow and address those issues, the bad things that happen today, tomorrow, then you can kind of put that to rest. The other thing is, is Dick Blick puts a um, cursed panel in every box. So every now and then you just have to pick up that panel, walk to the trash can and throw it out and start again. Now, starting again, sometimes people say, well, why don't you just use the same panel and paint over it? Nope. Mm -mm, No, that doesn't work because that one is tainted and it must be gone. That's how I feel about it. There's just something about it. You know, the texture of the surface isn't right anymore. You know, you can sometimes see a ghost of what happened underneath and it's not good. When you start again, you do kind of have that flustered feeling that this isn't going to work out either. So I have little painting 
games and tricks that I'll play with myself. You know, there's some exercises I can do that will get me out of the process, like take me out of it. So for instance, you know, you've all heard of making a painting in 30 strokes or less. I can do that then I'm not really responsible for what happens. So I might do something like that. I have techniques that really heighten dark, dark, darks. And I might try something like that. It's a strange technique where you put all these super darks in first and you build it up from there. Again, it gets you more engaged with the painting. So usually if a painting doesn't come out or if you're frustrated, it's because you're not thinking about what you're doing. Your mind is wandering to what's going on for the next part of the day. So if I can sort of redirect myself and focus myself in a different way with a, a little painting game, I call it, that usually gets me out of that frustrated mode. And then how do you keep inspired showing up every day? Getting up and doing it right first thing in the morning, you really don't even think about it. If I put it off for the end of the day, sometimes I think I would be like, ugh. I don't feel like sitting still and doing this, but there are other ways to stay inspired too. So like going to the studio and working on a bigger painting, cause that's a whole different set of rules. I will um, work in one hour increments and work on a reward system. So I think that would work with a daily painting project too, where if you can sit down for an hour and then go take a walk or do something else, because there are people that will say, Oh, I spent eight hours in the studio today. And I think, why, what did you do in there for eight hours? That's not my thing. I kind of want to do as many things as I can in a day. So I think there's ways to kind of trick yourself into staying inspired. Like you really have to tell yourself you're going to show up for the job and you're going to sit still, but you don't have to do it all day long either. Like you can say, I'm going to do this for an hour. I'm going to go do something else that I like, and then I'm going to come back. And even if it's going well in that hour and you think, oh, I'll just stay a little longer. No, get up, leave the party on a high note and come back later before you sabotage it. Right. You have the strategy of you don't go back. You only move forward. Mm -hmm. What does that give you? Well, on the daily paintings, the six inch paintings, it gives me the sense of freedom that this painting will someday be done because there's nothing worse than starting a painting and going back in and fiddling and fiddling and fiddling. I kind of call it noodling because you're not making it. I already said this better or worse. You're just making it different. So you kind of have to allow yourself just to put the mark down and leave it. With the six-inch panels, they're so small anyhow that to kind of keep going back in there, you're going to mess stuff up. Also, where I read only oil painting techniques, that was also a technique from there because to build on top of something in that small and a one sitting painting becomes a little bit difficult. So that additive process was really what worked for me. Now, it's not how I treat other paintings. So when I paint bigger paintings, I will subtract from the painting. I'll use sandpaper or a sander or whatever it takes. So that kind of exploration or risk-taking still does happen in my practice, but not on the daily painting. And again, it's those rules and those boundaries that you set for yourself. Whatever's going to get you away from that painting before you kill it with kindness or before you don't want to sit there anymore is what works for you. So for me, it's putting a mark down and leaving it. Well, and also the recognition that painting, if you're having to make all the choices at all the time, is exhausting and can kind of wear you out. Mm -hmm. But if you have parameters and you sort of recognize those parameters, like on the small painting, it's additive, but on the bigger pieces that I give more time, I can have different parameters. And then you don't have to feel bad about anything. You can just say, this is how I approach this work. Yeah, like the bigger paintings wind up being opposite worlds. So where I only use six tubes of paint on the daily paintings, and I should add, I've also added pink and 
I mean, there's always white, so it's really seven tubes because of the flowers around day 1000. But in the studio, when I work on bigger paintings, it's not acrylic, it's oil, and it's hundreds of different colors of tubes of paint, and it's sandpaper, and it's all different types of things that I don't use on the daily paintings. I think it allows me to kind of explore both sides of that, reacting to paint and then also kind of just putting something down and, and leaving it and that permanence of that other mark making process works in the daily painting project. So why do you work from life? Well, it's, again, part of the rules of the Daily Painting Project because if not, if I sat down every morning and was like, well, I need to come up with this narrative drawing and it could be anything and I don't even know how I would start that or you know just again going to the market and finding you know fruits and vegetables to paint from life was becoming complicated because we're just sort of hit with all these decisions to make so I can get something and work that way but for this project setting that rule that this is what I'm doing gets me every day I know what I'm going to do first. We're going to transition into materials and then process a little bit. What boards do you paint on? I buy six-inch fiber boards. They're hard boards, pardon me. So if you look on the Dick Book website, it's hardboard panels, and they're six inches. They run about 60 cents per panel. And when I first started the project, I was using very nice maple cradled boards that were about $10 each, and they were really thin. Thick. Well, not really thick, but maybe three quarters of an inch. So I started doing the math on how much they cost. And I thought, well, this isn't really a sustainable habit all year long. And then also to store them became kind of problematic because they took up so much space. So these panels are great. They're about an eighth of an inch thick, I bet. And they're not expensive. So that is a really good compromise for me for surfaces. And I like the surface because it's a little smooth. So you kind of lose a little bit of the precision that we're so used to trying to get. Does that also take away some of the pressure of like, if you think you're painting on a, like every day, a $5 to $15 cradled maple board, like that's a lot of pressure to put on a painting. It, it is a lot of pressure. And also these boards, because I'm painting an acrylic, I don't have to gesso them or anything. So there's no prep in that. I can just grab one and go. What type of paint do you use? I use Liquitex heavy body acrylic. And the only reason I use them is because of the caps. The caps are nice and big and I don't have to get pliers or use my teeth to get them off because that's not going to go well first thing in the morning. That's going to aggravate me to the point where I'm not going to want to paint if I have to go look for pliers in the basement. Uh, what palette do you use? I use Cad Red Medium, Cad Yellow Medium, Phthalo Blue, Alizarin, Cad Yellow Light, and Ultramarine Blue, Titanium White, and Quinacridone Magenta. And I added the Quinacridone Magenta in about a day 1,000 or so or maybe after that a little bit when I started painting more flowers because you could I couldn't get a very great pink with just that cad red and that alizarin and it wasn't working so well. I would also argue that if you wanted to add a tube of orange, that might be kind of fun, but I don't mind the oranges that I get, but I do know that some people prefer a tube of orange in that too. And then what kind of brushes? I always use Winsor & Newton University Bright. I think it's like Series 11 or Series I always forget. They have the long handle ones. They have a red handle and they have a nice flat square end to them that you can paint with. They last a long time. They're synthetic. But they just have a nice bounce to them and they're not expensive. And I probably use the same set of brushes for almost a year. I leave them in water overnight. I just don't get it into the metal part so that that doesn't fall off of it. And then you paint with like one inch square or flats? Yes, one is about half an inch and one is about an inch. 
That's yeah. big. Yeah, they are pretty big compared to the size of the panel. And then how do you actually set up your colors? Do you, you don't squeeze them out every day or do you? I do squeeze them out every day, sometimes on a disposable palette, but mostly I just use an old magazine because, you know, I get the New Yorker every week. So I just use that. Yeah, I squeeze them out in the same way. Uh, Warm colors on one side, cool on the other, and then white and pink down at the bottom. And that way I know where they are every single day. They're in exactly the same place every single day. You use a limited palette. For someone starting out, especially, what challenges and then what opportunities does a limited palette create? I think it only creates opportunities because you're mixing all your colors. I think, you know, for me, for a long time, I had a big old tube of sap green or something, and it ruined my life, and I just couldn't paint. So getting rid of those extra colors, it creates more color harmony if you're mixing all your colors from the same color palette. I actually think it's really much easier to paint and mix your paints with a limited palette than if you have all the colors at your disposal. And why is that? Because they create color harmony because you're using the same colors to mix all the other colors rather than just grabbing a random tube of something else halfway through your painting that you hadn't used at all leading up to that. That's going to create a disconnect. Right. I never thought about that because if you have, like you've been mixing all your colors and then you throw in a sap green, like even if you have greens other places, that is going to feel so different. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes a hiccup of color can work to your advantage, but then also if you're fighting against it, you have to realize this isn't working. I'm fighting against this. Why is it important to know your materials? For me, it's not to know your materials. It's to like your materials more so than anything, because honestly, you could spend a lot of money on a brush and it it's too coarse. It's not putting the paint on the surface right. Maybe the kind of paint you're using is too thin. There's a lot of materials that don't work in the same way together, like on the same types of boards. So this combination works really well for me. And it's been through a process of elimination of owning every single art supply on the planet before deciding that these ones worked together well. Thinking about process a little bit, could you walk us through your process, like when you walk into your studio to basically painting is finished? Remember, I'm doing these early in the morning, so I'm doing them in the corner of my kitchen. So here's my process. It's the corner of my kitchen because I haven't always had, you know, a real dedicated studio and I didn't want to have an excuse not to make the painting. So I get up, I put the coffee on because that's always the first part. And as the coffee is doing what it does, I um, pour the paints out. I clean the brushes from the day before because I don't clean them at the end of the session. I set up the panel. I turn the light on. At this point, the coffee is ready. I grab the coffee and then I start painting. And that's really all there is to the process. There's not much more to it anymore. The panels I store in a drawer underneath where the paper towel roll is because I'm using that to lean on instead of an easel. I'm sitting. I'm not standing because it's way too early for that kind of thing. And that's all there is to it. How do you then build up the painting itself? It's an additive process. Do you start with the thing that caught your attention and work out, or do you build it up all at the same time? Yeah, I start by toning the canvas in one color, 
And I always use CAD Red Medium. Um, so that's usually white on white. Some of that color will come up into the paint, and I'm okay with that. Again, that's an oil painting technique. And then the other thing is that, like you said, I'll start with something that I like. I'll squint down, I'll find a shape I like, and that's really where I start. From there, I don't build it in any way that makes sense. Like I don't go for the lights first, the darks first, or any of that. I sort of bounce around looking for more shapes that I like. And then I think through that, it's because maybe some of the other stuff I don't really know what to do with. And the more you fill in around it, the more that that extra shape almost gets built by what's going on around it kind of thing. So if you save that for the last, it's not as tricky. So yeah, the painting takes place kind of all at the same time, like all sides of it, all different colors. I use two different brushes, one for lights, one for darks. So if you know, I don't want to contaminate the colors sometimes. I don't always switch to that dark brush. I can really yank a lot of paint out with a paper towel, just like you would in oil. And I don't really dip the brush into the water that often either because that makes it too wet on the canvas and then it's really difficult to work with. So you really, wow, really like oil. So like you work mostly with the paint. Then are you working dark and light at the same time or do you? I am. Oh, Okay. Yeah, always. Yep. Sometimes with the same brush or if it gets too messy, I'll pick up a separate brush to keep the lights and dark separately. But I don't do that that often. Also, the only other tool I have is a very small water bottle, just a very light mist to keep the paints wet on the palette and to keep the paints a little more pliable on the fiberboard too. You're really paying attention to shapes, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Are you also thinking about lights and darks or is it, or values and... I mean, you're thinking about all of it, but I guess, are you thinking about all of that at all time? Or are you, do you have a thing like you first think through sort of shapes and then in this shape, you work with the lights and darks and then you move to another shape and works with lights and darks? Yeah, I think when you squint down, the lights and darks become really evident and that also makes the shape. So they kind of work together. If you switch a lot of my paintings into grayscale, they might not have a very large value range either. So I'm working a lot of times with colors against each other and that makes the painting more so than probably the value structure in a lot of them. So I'm not really thinking about lights or darks. And two, I'm definitely thinking of a variety of type of edges because hard edges will create a focal point and a soft edge will move an eye along. So I'm definitely playing around with that and to get a softer edge I just spritz it and move it with my finger for example on something like your focal area do you go in let's say a pink flower and more or less finish that shape and then you're sort of more or less done with it like you might add some things at the end but you're more or less done with it and then you move on to a different shape yes I'm always just trying to put down a mark and walk away and leave it for sure unless I've really blown it with the mixing of the color or something then yeah I will leave it. Was it important for you to find a repeatable process? Yes, definitely. Yeah, something that I could just sit down at and execute. Absolutely. I took a lot of my cues also from writers because a lot of writers that I read about will get up and do five lines a day. So I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. So I've also sort of translated that practice into painting, right? So if you kind of think of it that way too, it makes kind of makes more sense. How do you actually set up your still life? Like, what does that part of the process look like? Go to the market. I get flowers. Um, in the winter, it's just the grocery store. In the summer, there's a lot of farm stands that I can get them at, and those, those are kind of nice. So I just buy one or two bouquets. I put them together in a very small kind of a, um, you know, the wine glasses without stems or mason jars or anything kind of 
short and glass. I enjoy cutting the bouquet down as low as I can because it's a square six inch panel. So having something rectangular isn't really going to fit in there. So I'm constantly thinking about, is my setup okay from the beginning? Am I going to be fighting with the setup? So if there's harmony in my flower arrangement in harmony with the background that I've set up, and usually I use colored tissue paper for the background because that's easy to use. I bring that with me on workshops all the time and that's great because there's a lot of bright colors at home I'm also working near a bookshelf so I'll grab different colored books to put behind my still life to change the color I don't work with cloth because that's another thing to manage you have to wash it and clean it and iron it and so that becomes problematic and I really don't want any problems with the daily painting project I just sort of want to show up so I set that up kind of quick quick I don't spend a lot of time fussing with it cut the stems way down probably I cut seven inches off the stems when I get them and I have a little tiny light that plugs in right near it. A very bright light source is definitely something you can't really live without. When you paint early in the morning, the overhead light is pretty dim in my house and I kind of like it that way. So I don't have a ton of light on my canvas, if you will, my panel, but I have ambient light from the floral setup that's kind of cast over it. And by painting in a dim light, too, your colors come out a lot brighter. So all of that kind of goes together. The flower setup, the light, how it's reacting to the surface I'm painting on in my palette. And I'm in such a small little setup. I'm not standing up. I'm sitting down. That everything kind of works together like that. Then do you go in with a color scheme in mind? The setup in real life, the flowers already have harmony the background is harmonious with the setup. So yes, the color scheme is dictated by life. But you've done that thinking in the setup. Yeah, I've done that planning, yes, ahead of time. Why is it important to have a, a dominant light source? Well, if you don't have a dominant light source, it's really hard to kind of get your lights in your shadows. So I have a dominant light source. And if you squint while you're looking at it, you can see your bright brights, you can see your dark darks. If you don't squint, your eyes make midtones out of everything. I just prefer a dominant light source like that. It makes it kind of easier to see the shapes, and I'm interested in seeing how I can simplify shapes and forms. And if you really cast it with a bright light, you can pop those in and out. So when you're setting up that still life, that's really where you're doing the bulk of your thinking and like composition and design part mm -hmm. of it? Yes, definitely. Yep. I have a little viewfinder that I can look through, can hold it. It's just a square and I can crop into my still life however I want. I can tilt it up and down. I can foreshorten it. And um, that's really how I set the composition up because I'm not drawing it first on the canvas or the panel. I'm just painting it as I go. How simple are you trying to keep the subject itself? On the painting or in real life? In real life. The flowers definitely are not simple because there's all these little petals. So it's more of like training your eye to see the shapes rather than looking for a subject that's simple. So we can simplify anything down to its most essential forms, right? So a lot of students in my workshops work with me because they want to loosen up. So we kind of talk about that from the beginning. Like they can sit there if they want and paint every single little petal. Like we could all do that. That would be fine. But that's not really what we're trying on for size in this workshop. That level of detail you can use to direct somebody's eye to a focal point. If you're a detail painter, that there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a lot of people will come in with a very um, good eye for detail and want to kind of strip some of that away. Not all of it, but some of it. How does someone learn to get looser? Do you think working from life helps that? 
Definitely. Absolutely. What about working from life helps that? Working from an imagination. And if you're trying to make, let's say you're trying to make a pot of flowers from imagination. Now you have to do a whole lot of work. Like you need to figure out what the flowers look like, figure out where your light source is coming from. How does the light source cast onto that flower? How does it make a shadow? What would it do to the glass? All of that stuff is informed by a long time of looking at things. But to create a drawing from scratch instead of direct from observation, it would take a lot more planning and a lot more process work than just putting something in front of myself and looking at it and painting it. I feel like when we're beginning beginners, we all think that we should be working from our imagination, that somehow working from life is like just that we shouldn't be doing that for some reason, as opposed to like, no, 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 like that's, you have a lot more work cut out for yourself if you're only trying to work from your imagination. Well, and working from life also informs your perceptions. So later on that, that will inform your imaginative work because you only see things the way you see it. So, I mean, we're kind of always responding to what's going on or or maybe working towards some sort of thesis or something that we've written, right? So no, I think working direct from observation is an important part of the practice. And I think that you can work from imagination. I do that as well. But I also incorporate direct from observation components to it in order to give myself a launching point. So when you're looking at those flowers, what kind of simplification are you doing? What like what specific information do you think you'll relay in your painting versus what specific information will you just ignore isn't the right word, but simplify down in maybe a way? Oh, no. Ignore is a very good word. I will definitely ignore fluffy flowers or little baby's breath or anything that's annoying. They might be there as moral support for the other flowers, but I might just gray them out or make them one gigantic kind of shape. If you don't eyes all you won't see the little tiny baby's breath if you squint down I guarantee they will become some sort of massive form and that's really helpful so I'm looking for bright colors I'm looking for shapes that I think are unusual I am looking to be able to now to be able to put on the panel the thing I'm painting in the least amount of shapes really that's kind of my game that I'm playing at this moment and you'll see some of them are like there's really not much there. And, you know, maybe those aren't that successful, but you don't know, right? So I love to um, take away as much as I can and then put stuff back in as I need to. Also, I'm usually trying to exaggerate something. So where I do like color, I will go back in kind of at the end and I'll say what attracted me to this setup to begin with. People will use what was the focal point, but sometimes that's a little difficult to discern in my opinion. So I will just say what attracted me to this. And that is usually the focal point. And then what I do is I exaggerate that either by kind of heightening the color, brightening it up, or kind of redefining the shape by going in around it to the background or something like that. So those are the types of things that I'm looking for. But it sounds like you don't need to simplify your reference because you'll do that in your mind. Yeah. Now, remember, I like to go do other things. So in a way, I'm trying to get this painting done, right? So part of that is trying to simplify it so I'm not there all day painting every petal or every bud on the baby's breath. Yeah, because I am setting a time limit for this painting. So I need to keep that in mind, too, that I don't have all day to do this. If I did, I would definitely sit there and do every single detail of it. But that's not the rules I've set for it. What is your goal for your colors? 
to get them as clean as possible, not muddy. You know, I do like to work with grays, but I think grays are a little bit different than mud. Trying to keep them pretty pure kind of thing. And I don't know, as as colorful as possible. Does having that one paintbrush for lights and one paintbrush for darks aid in that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, because then you don't muddy up something that you weren't supposed to. Particularly if you're painting in oils, that always helps. And it also translates to acrylic too. When you look at that arrangement of flowers, do you start with the colors you see and then go from there? How does that interplay work? Yeah, I start with the colors I see and then I will exaggerate them towards the end to give the painting just a little bit more, I don't know, just something a little extra, I suppose. And you talked about this in the beginning, but when you use a color, like you mix a color for the focal flower, how do you use that color? I only use it for a couple of strokes, three strokes or so, and then I will continue to add little dabs of other colors to it to keep changing it. So I like to keep changing the color as often as I can throughout the painting. It's not that I'm going to make a mosaic, but I think that slight variety of color throughout the painting creates a little bit more interest. So even if you're working still in that main flower, again, this is just for an example. Yeah. You lay down a couple brush strokes with that and then you change it and then lay a couple more down, change it. Yes. Also, like I've seen people with the six inch panel, like do I've counted like a lot of brush strokes. And at that point, it's like you're just kind of painting the wall of a house. You're not engaged in your subject anymore, for sure. You're definitely thinking about something else you have to do the next part of your day. And so a lot of this practice is about staying engaged in the subject, in the paint and in the panel, instead of letting your mind wander to something else. There's a lot of different ways to approach composition. What do you want from your compositions? Um, I look through the viewfinder and I'm moving it around in order to find how I'm going to fit it in so it makes sense. I'm looking for kind of a variety to make sure the top of it is incorporated with the bottom of it. Like I don't want a painting to be able to be folded in half and the flowers end up on the top and the cup ends up on the bottom. So I'm looking for how to make sort of a tiny, tiny square fluid. I'm also trying to think of placement so that, you know, there's focal points in like a tic-tac-toe board, like every time it intersects. So I'm trying to push a composition to fill up those spaces. If I don't have something in that space, it's not the end of the world, but I know a person's eye is going to go directly into one of those intersections. So I'm going to be prepared to move them out with a, a brush stroke or what have you. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of is just integration in the composition, how to move somebody's eye around it, even though it's super small. And yeah, how to arrange it so that it can't basically be split in half. And you said you don't do drawing. So you don't do any sort of tick mark or any sort of structural drawing. You just go in directly with paint. No, at the very beginning of this project, I would do little tiny thumbnails, which just are about one inch drawings, and they look kind of like chicken scratches. They don't have any value or anything. They're just line drawings. And after doing enough of those, I got kind of the lay of the land and was able to just segue into looking in the back of um, the viewfinder. But I never translated those chicken scratching thumbnails onto the canvas. I never mapped it out. That just gave me enough of the lay of the land in order to be able to know where the bottom of the vase would go or cup or whatever. So yeah, I do not draw it out first. Drawing it out first for me always meant that I was going to almost color in the lines like a coloring book and I wouldn't get that sort of looseness that I was looking for. It became very static. Right. Because you want to use the brush to make shapes. Yeah. I guess with any subject, but flowers, was it hard to give yourself permission to not paint something that 
looked like a daisy or looked like a rose? You know, I spent a long time with a pencil trying to get things to look like a rose or look like a daisy before all the painting, right? So it wasn't a leap for me to try to make it look different. In a way, we could kind of all sit with one piece of paper and one 2B pencil in the same, like we could put a glass of water in front of us and we could all draw exactly the same thing for two days and we could get it really realistic and we could put them all up on the wall wouldn't know who did what right because it would be missing that interpretation that is unique to yourself so if you kind of have maybe a not so steady hand like you can lean into that because that would create different marks than somebody else would make so it's that kind of thing that um I didn't want to rely on my drawing skills whatever they were right and I didn't want to sit there and try to make it perfect so on those boards you really just to make sure I'm understanding this right you don't do any sort of drawing with a brush or anything you directly with paint yeah what is the thinking you're doing around something like how light works in glass Glass is one of those illusions in that if you squint down, you realize you're just looking through it. So whatever color the background is, is coming through. My um, cups are so stuffed with stems that generally they're a big blob of green. There might be a little bit of the background coming through. Glass is awesome because there's always a lost edge. So sometimes there's really no edge of the glass. It just kind of blurs right into the background. And you have to recognize that one way you can tell that you're not squinting is if you're drawing the shape of the glass if you're squinting you don't see the shape of the glass you see an edge coming out you see a highlight here and there and then you're done with it I mean I've seen some people paint glass and it's just a few stems and a big dot of whitish highlight on it in that and it says glass so it really is breaking the form down and not looking at the outer edges of it but looking at it from kind of the inside out you can learn more about Lisa Daria Kennedy and her workshops at her website, lisadariakennedy.com, and on Facebook and Instagram, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 14 for show notes, including links to Kennedy's workshops. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Happy painting! Happy painting!